Welcome back to the Black Diplomats Podcast, where everyone could be a diplomat. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. We're back after a long hiatus, but I can assure you that it was well worth the wait. Not only do we have a new format, but we're in the middle of working on several special projects that I'm going to roll out starting in May. And in later shows, I'll talk to y'all more about that. Today's show will be China, China, and Mo China. We have so much China news, including reports that several men have been arrested in connection with operating police outposts in New York City, including around the nation. And the efforts are to surveil the Chinese diaspora. A U.S. warship also sailed through the Taiwan Strait recently, and this is further evoking concerns of an all-out conflict between Beijing and the United States. We'll also talk about the alleged sex trafficker, Andrew Tate. Yeah, Tate, perhaps the world's most famous misogynist, um, is in Romania facing a wide range of sexual assault charges. And by the way, how the hell did a 21-year-old gamer with a Discord account get access to war secrets about the invasion of Ukraine? You know... (laughs) Who knows? But, you know, we're going to jump in that. But another thing I want to talk about is um, if you're like me, you're probably getting tired of people talking about what Kamala Harris ain't doing. One report after another seems to complain that no one knows what she does. And it's really irritating. So I'm devoting a new segment of this show that's going to highlight what she's doing week by week and our thoughts on her work and what we think about her media coverage um, in regards to being the VP. So with me to break down all these topics are two of my favorite people, Brother Earl Carr and Sister Nola Haynes. I feel like we're at the Dinkins meetings. You know, know, it's it's just like that. So, (laughs) so, So Dr. Nola Haynes is a political scientist who teaches at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Her research centers on national security, and foreign policy issues, particularly focused on arms control and international security, uh, traditional and emerging threats. She's a member of the Reconvene International Security Advisory Board at the United States Department of State. She is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, a security fellow at Truman National Security Project, and is affiliated Mm -hmm. with the National Security Policy Center at the University of Virginia. Dr. Haynes, has substantive experience regarding nuclear and conventional weapons, policy norms, sanctions, treaty making, and she appears frequently on MSNBC and other news outlets, podcasts, and is an op-ed contributor. So Brother Earl Carr, who is our China expert, has over 25 years of experience working in both the private sector and nonprofit business organizations, having held positions at McKenzie Company, uh, HSBC Bank, Morgan Stanley, the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also founder and chief executive officer of CJPA Global Advisors. He is a monthly columnist at Forbes and editor of the book From Trump to Biden and Beyond, Reimagining U.S.-China Relations. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Ooh. Blessed and highly favored. That part, but I love that book, though. (laughs) <laughs> I need I need that book in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I, I consider myself humble students of both of you. I have so I have so much tremendous respect for both of you. Um, it's interesting, Terrell. I first heard about you because my sister spent eight years in Malawi, Africa, and we were talking about the discrimination that Africans were 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 facing. African students fleeing from Ukraine, and some of the reporting that you did was which was foundational. And, and Nola, I've heard so much about you from a variety of ICAP fellows, the DINS <laughs> fellows. So it's just, it's it's a true honor to be able to be on this on this show with both of you. Right on, I, y'all. I feel, I feel the same way. Like, Terrell is that guy, man. Like, for real. Like, if you're in this space <laughs> and you don't know Terrell Star, honey, and his uniqueness, you ain't doing something right. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. May, may, may the church say amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> But, but, but I want disclosure, but I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> yo, yo, you know, I, I want to do a temperature check with y'all because there's so much crazy shit that's happening in the world. And before we get into all this heavy stuff, I want to do a mental health check in mm. with y'all about how you feeling about everything. And so, um, Nola, just, you know, we got people leaking stuff about state secrets. We got brothers and sisters who are being targeted by crazy white people with guns in a world in which Republicans mainly, right? It's mostly Republicans who are, who are not really uh, um, ready to really reconcile the fact that we need to have a really comprehensive gun reform policy in order to fight back against all this stuff. And it's impacting us, right? It's interacting black people, but also as a white woman up here in New York, you know, who was killed simply by going into someone's driveway, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so all of this stuff is just very stressful. So how are you processing everything, Nola? That's such a good question. And, you know, I literally just, I think on Sunday, I had to have like a, you know, a come to a come to Jesus moment with one of my friends in the IC community for a lot of reasons. I recently did another podcast on Friday. And I I kept thinking about it because I keep hearing from folks that they're scared. And what should we do? Are we on the brink of World War III? Um, why should Black folks care about these things? It's like, you know, the, you, you hear the anxiety and you hear the frustration in people's voices. And so when I was talking to my friend, one of the things that I said was, you know, one of the things that I'm feeling, there's a level of Guilt, I think, might be the right word, because I think when you are Black and when you are in the foreign policy space and less focused on domestic stuff, one, you know, it's 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 cool in one way, but then there's always this kind of pushback like, well, why are you... Um, why are you focusing on things, you know, that don't matter to us here? And that's very untrue. The relationship between foreign policy, national security, and domestic politics, they're all interconnected. So one, I was grappling with some level of guilt that I, that, that I was feeling about it. And then this kind of overwhelmingness in terms of there is a lot going on in the world, a lot, you know. And when you're in this space, especially policy, and people need to understand, when you're a policy person, you are drawn into kind of a lot of different areas. You know, you're in the larger sphere of of what you do, but one day, you know, your portfolio can be focused on this thing and then the next day you're focused on this thing. And so by having your feet in different areas, 
all of it kind of lands on you in a in 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 a certain way you know um ukraine um and i know terrell you know you have intimate intimate feelings about that but you know thinking about um people keep still ask me about britney reiner um you know and it's like someone asked me recently well did 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 the government respond quick enough i'm like are you kidding uh that's oh, an understatement God, yes listen there, there, no black woman and I don't think in history has ever really been treated better. And I don't think people, I think that's an interesting, I'm sorry to interject, but yeah, I mean, she's the first black woman that was designated as somebody who was arrested under, yeah. un I, I forgot detained. the technical term. You probably know better. Like, I don't detained. know if it's unfair circumstance. I forgot the Illegally term. Illegally detained. But yeah, she was mm -hmm. the, um, the key person or yeah. example of somebody that, yeah. So the, the stress, so, so, so let me, yes, let me wrap this up real quick. So the stress of it is, you know, there is a hesitancy. There is a reluctancy in the black community regarding government. And so when you're out there, even though I'm not representing, oh, I need to say that I am not representing the state department. I'm not representing the U S government. I'm talking, this is me, this is little old me. Um, but when you're out there and people see you as a figure connected to those things, they think that you're lying to them. And that part hurts because my job to me, my ministry, as I see it, is to educate people that look like me. Um, that is the most important thing on the planet to me. So when people come at you, when you're talking, when you have facts, when you've been in the rooms and they still don't like that trust factor isn't there, that weighs on me the heaviest. So I take it out in yoga at the gym hiking. You know, I still live in LA, so there are tons of hiking trails around. It's being outside. It's work, working my body. It's being still. It's meditating and hanging out with friends. Just that kind of, that safe space just to be. Right. I got you. Hey, Earl, I'll give you a couple minutes uh, before you move forward. I, I want to say thank you so much for the question and so much of what Nola said resonates with me. What, what, what I didn't mention in my bio is that um, my, my father is black from Jamaica and my mother is, is Panamanian Chinese, and, 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 but I was born in Panama and grew up in New York City. And so I'm a proud Blasian. And I always say, once you go Blasian, you got the magic equation with the firm foundation. <laughs> um, so I, I think, you know, what was interesting that Nola said that really resonated with me is, you know, I've been having lived abroad in, in China, in Taiwan. I would be in certain situations around people and they would say and talk about black people in Mandarin and not know that I was black. And mm -hmm. I think for me, helping people in different parts of Asia understand that black comes in different sizes, shades and colors and helping them understand that there is no mo one monolithic notion of, of, of what black means or stands for. Um, and I had to do a lot of educating uh, about how Asians and the, and the systemic racism that exists in the Asian community about black people. I've, I've lived through that. Um, my grand, my wife's father and grandfather did not attend our wedding because, uh, you know, he, he, he understood that, you know, I was, I was half black. And so I think these are issues that um, have really permeated our, our community for so long. Um, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, one one other point about something that Nola said. Uh, I was listening to a speech that Brian Stevenson gave uh, recently at the United Nations, and he was talking about the story of how he had been he's been defending so many different 
uh, people around the world, in particular um, uh, youth that were, you know, put on death row. Um, and he went into a room and the the judge said, sorry, um, you know, defendants, please stay out. Can you please leave the room? I'm not, I'm, you know, we're, we're not ready to have you out here. Not knowing that he was the lawyer <laughs> defending the case. And there's so many examples of that in, in our community. So I just wanted to say, I appreciate you asking the question. Oh, no doubt. Listen, thank you very much for opening up about that. So, look, bro, we're going to get straight into news on uh, on China. So I'm pretty sure that many of you have heard that several men have been arrested in connection with a Chinese outpost in Manhattan that was conducting police operations without any jurisdiction or diplomatic approval. According to the New York Times, these outposts, according to the Times, speak to China's efforts to police its diaspora beyond its borders. And so we're going to play a video clip that comes from the Department of Justice uh, the uh, here locally here in New York City that outlines the charges. The two complaints charge more than 30 officers with China's national police force, which is called the Ministry of Public Security or the MPS, and two New York City residents with violations of U.S. law. The MPS has repeatedly and flagrantly violated our nation's sovereignty, including by opening and operating a police station in the middle of New York City. The station was providing some government services, like helping Chinese citizens renew their Chinese driver's licenses. On at least one occasion, an official with the Chinese National Police directed one of the defendants, a U.S. citizen who worked at the secret police station, to help locate a pro-democracy activist of Chinese descent living in California. In other words, the Chinese National Police appear to have been using the station to track a U.S. resident on U.S. soil. So let's be clear, this isn't new. China has long been accused of running these unapproved outposts around the world to monitor Chinese citizens and activities, uh, many of which are prohibited under Chinese law. So um, it's also true that every major country spies, including the United States of America. So I just want to add some context about that. But Earl, when you heard this news, what were your thoughts and how should we in the United States be understanding this? You know, it didn't surprise me because there have been a number of these incidents that have happened historically. I think what what is apparent is the brazenness of these of these um, uh, events happening more frequently. And I think it speaks to the notion of where we are in geopolitical tensions between the United States and China. I first went to China in 1998, and I can tell you, Terrell and Nola, these we are at a place where this is the worst I've ever seen U.S.-China relations in my entire lifetime, and probably the worst since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, with probably the exception of that. We are on, I think it is widely recognized both at the senior levels of governments in the United States and China that we are on a path towards some type of conflict between the United States and China unless certain things change. And that's and that's really disconcerting when you took it when you look at two of the largest economic powers, military powers. And I think it's it's really important to understand that China has always looked at parity with the United States, not only for legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party, but but also for its own modernization developments. Right. And you saw this in particular in the 1970s 
when you saw China looking at legitimacy for um, nuclear weapons, right? And now they're currently, they have a huge nuclear arsenal. You saw this legitimacy in the 1980s when China really wanted to get accepted into the World Trade Organization. And you are now seeing this legitimacy now, this parity now in the terms of the realms of AI and, and, um, and, and, and big data. So I think it's important to understand that trajectory. Good. So Nola, both of us work on arms control mm-hmm. in, in some way. And one of the things that a lot of people may not know is that China, at least as far as their military has over uh, their, their, their Navy, excuse me, has overtaken the United States. And a lot of concerns have been about America's focus on Ukraine and dealing with uh, Ru- uh, Russia on the European front. And the concerns of are we paying attention strategically to what's going on, you know, um, with, with with the Chinese. But then another thing, we you also know that the Chinese were uh, reportedly building hundreds of new ICBM silos, intercontinental ballistic missile silos. And Nola, as you know, the Chinese thought has always been about, you know, in regards to nuclear weapons that we don't necessarily need to get into an arms race because we have basically we have so many people we don't necessarily need all the nukes in the wo- world to win because at the end of the day we got the people and conventionally we're going to carry this home you know so it's a lot in play i just want to know what your thoughts are about this news nola mm-hmm. well i i completely agree with earl in terms of the egregiousness of having um your own police force inside another sovereign state that is egregious to say the least and yes historically you know um every country spies on each other um typically you try to operate within the parameters it as 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 kind of oxymoronic as it sounds you try not to as you're violating someone else's sovereignty you're trying not to do it a lot (laughs) you know And, and this 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 is a lot right um this is a lot. But to your point, Terrell, yes. So one of the things that, you know, sent every sector of China as it's positioning itself to be the chief superpower, um, knocking the United States, you know, off its throne. You can literally look at every single sector and see how China has ex- injected itself into it. Right. Um, and one of the things that I'm writing about now that I've been paying a lot of t- attention to was a successful hypersonic uh, missile launch that China had. I think it's like two years at this point and everybody kind of lost their minds. Let's uh, explain that briefly. I'm sorry. Let me explain what hypersonic is because uh, a lot of us are yeah, not going to yeah. know. I, so I can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Go please ahead. go ahead. So just yesterday I had attended the, um, the NATO WMD conference um, hosted with state and Howard. And one of the things I wanted them to talk about was conventional weapons. Um, while the conference obviously was focused on WMD, typically meaning nuclear, nuclear-based weapons, conventional weapons are not necessarily nuclear weapons, but you can arm them with nuclear warheads. And they are faster. They um, they they reach higher. They reach higher um, altitude, which is why we talk about hypersonic missiles um, in in uh, parallel to space. And the one feature of a hypersonic missile is before you even know that it's about to strike you, it's already there. So we don't we we are in the process of building uh, detection capabilities for hypersonic uh, 
missiles. And so I have a colleague that says, I talked to the, to my colleague just yesterday about this, you know, shouldn't we be pivoting towards uh, conventional weapons when they are deadlier than uh, nuclear warheads? And so that's that's kind of a new conversation. So um, the stealth, the stealthness of um, hypersonic missiles, the altitude range, all of these are, are, are concerning. And it's not a new weapon. Um, Ch uh, Russia had a program that was supposedly disbanded in the 90s, um, but it, it was weaponry that people had, that states agreed to kind of, you know, step away from. Just like there's conversations around weaponization of AI, which, by the way, China does have that tech. Um, so right now, conventional weapons have definitely, or direct, you know, and directed energy weapons have definitely come back into the conversation as we're talking about modernization, which is a different conversation from nuclear, from, from the nuclear space. We're talking about modernization in terms of pivoting towards conventional weapons. So, um, I say all that to say, I hope that offered a, le a little clarity, but I say all that to say, that's what I'm keeping my eye on. Um, I'm really focused on, um, hypersonics, you know, all types of emerging directed energy weapons. I know that sounds very Star Trek-y, but we're here. We are here. <laughs> and, yeah, so, um, so, and um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to close out uh, this part by saying that hypersonic, you know, if you go above Mach 5, basically, mm -hmm. the speed of sound, you're, you're pretty much hypersonic. But more specifically, when people talk about hypersonics, you're talking about maneuverability. And so... Mm -hmm. It, you know, the hypersonics are, you know, when people say that it's a particular type of of, of, of vehicle that mm -hmm. is able to ev evade defense platforms. Right. So that's what you're breaking down to. That's a wider kind of wonky conversation. But there's but I just wanted to add that. So mm -hmm. let's get into some relatively lighter news about Republicans wanting to ban TikTok. So. They say this popular platform is a security risk for U.S. citizens and empowers the Chinese Communist Party to spread misinformation. Mind you, these are the same people who support Donald Trump and are some of the biggest disseminators of disinformation that this country has ever seen. But I digress. Um, Republicans are fighting back against calls uh, for a ban. So Representative uh, Jamal Bowman told MSNBC's uh, Jen uh, Psaki recently that a more holistic approach to combating social media disinformation is needed. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, a, a comprehensive piece of legislation that deals with the issue of safety and security and the sharing of our data all over the world, which is currently happening right now. And so that's why I spoke out against the attacks on TikTok, because if we ban TikTok tomorrow, our data will still be bought and sold and shared on the open market all over the world. And the Chinese Communist Party would have access to that data as well. They do now if they choose to buy it. So it's a disingenuous and misleading conversation to just focus on TikTok. Earl, what are your thoughts, brother? No, it's a great question. And, you know, what, what I saw when you look at that five hours of TikTok's CEO being grilled by senators, two things came to my mind. The first thing is the fact that, you know, one, we, we have to understand the, the larger implications of um, why this is going on now, right? So the, the, the question at hand is that one is, there is this notion that um, with respect to protecting people's pri privacy and, and data, right? That's number one. The second 
the 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 the, the corollary question is banning TikTok um, with governments, right? So TikTok has been banned uh, in governments such as Australia, Estonia, UK, France, the Netherlands, Norway, and Belgium, right? So once TikTok has been banned by government employees in these countries, the question was, well, should be there be a further ban, you know, in, in terms of actual, you know, entire, you know, countries. Um, the only state that currently has banned TikTok for now is in the state of Montana. And, 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 and the government, it will, it's gone to the, the governor to sign off on legislation. And we'll, we'll see if he, and he said that he will, he will give due, you know, he will take it very seriously. But I think it, it's it's a great question. I mean, I think that the geopolitics of where we are is definitely playing into why why now, why here. There has been no evidence that has pr- been presented that TikToks has been selling data to the Chinese government, right? There's been no evidence to support that. However, everyone knows that if you're in China, the Chinese government can access and, and, and have access to data. We understand that. What's been interesting is that if you look at some of the millennials, right, and faith great faith-based organizations, they use TikTok to share the gospel in so many different environments. And so many young people now are actually going to their senators and saying, if you ban TikTok, we will definitely, you know, vote you out of office. So it's it's been interesting to see that dichotomy. The other issue is this issue of reciprocity, right? People are arguing, if you go to China, you can't access Facebook, you can't access Google, you can't access Snapchat and all these other platforms because the Chinese government doesn't allow it unless you use what we call a VPN, a a virtual private network, where you can get outside the Chinese firewall. So I think those are some important considerations. Good. So Nola, I'm in about a minute. So can you um, add your thoughts? Um, Right. So, you know, I I think there are there are security concerns for a lot of the things that Earl just laid out. And, you know, there are some arguments that say, well, if if that's the case, then the damage has already been done. And is that, you know, is that a sound enough argument on, on, on the one hand? And then the other hand, you know, we are in a unique geopolitical situation right now. And um, considering, I, I think it, it, it's more, it would be more symbolic than anything. And I know that a lot of young people use it. I know a lot of entrepreneurs use it. Keep in mind, tech has come and gone before, you know, from MySpace to, I mean, Facebook isn't even what Facebook used to be, right? Um, Snapchat, they will be okay if TikTok goes away, right? First and foremost. But, you know, as a security person, I always got to put that hat on first. And I'm always going to lead from the position of, um, a threat assessment and security risks. So I, I think I, I'll just leave that there, but th- they'll be okay if, if TikTok goes away. No, and, I, and the broader, one of, I think the, the, the thing that really um, concerns a lot of policymakers is the specific algorithms that TikTok has that can change the narrative of messages, right? So you could put a TikTok video of someone dancing or saying something, but can it be edited in a way that essentially distorts the message to make it seem and be viewed as negative vis-a-vis the U.S. government, right? That's what mm. really concerns policymakers because that technology is there and it's very real. Right. right. So I wanted to close out this point and we move on to something and move on to our next segment because ultimately this deals with social media platforms essentially functioning as publishers. So before social media 
the way that we were able to consume news and information was pretty much coming from the major television networks, the major newspapers. And so with the advent of social media, you no longer have, you know, people who are trained in journalism to filter what we get. And we live in a country where we were never really taught media literacy. And we live in a country that barely teaches us civics about how we're supposed to be active citizens of our own country. For God's sakes, we literally live in a country, a very developed country in the United States, where you have elected officials who create laws that actively discourages people from voting. Okay, so we do not operate in a society where we educate people on how to be informed, educated citizens. And so this is a major information dump on so many Americans, right? And that is so, and that's what we really have to deal with. And we do not have the political and social will to properly address that. So let's move forward into our next segment that deals with another form of communication. Um, very briefly before we move on, yeah. Okay, to your point, I want to say something really quick. Um, I I also, you know, pay attention to disinformation and misinformation. And I cannot tell you how many times my students or, you know, have come to me and say, well, oh, I saw this on TikTok. You know, TikTok is almost like the new Wikipedia used to be back in the day when people used to use that as as a relevant source. So I just want to put that out there in the ether, too. It is a source of major misinformation and disinformation, too. Okay, next. Yeah, so, yeah, and so talking about a major source of misinformation, have y'all heard about the Manosphere? If y'all don't know what it is, it's basically, yeah, it's it's about you modern women, Nola. You are the problem. So if, if y'all don't know what it is, it's basically a digital world it's full of blogs, social media accounts, and forums that promote hypermasculine ideas about how the world should function and basically subjugates women. It's a bunch of patriarchal men whose life work is to own the feminists, basically. Jordan Peterson is probably the most well-known of them, but then you had people like Kevin Samuels, a black image consultant whose videos generate millions of views for uh, their scathing critiques of the so-called modern woman. But the person who I think took it global, really took it global in a new way, is a uh, former kickboxer, um, Andrew Tate, who branded himself as the ultimate alpha male. His videos have generated millions of views for commentary like this. If my woman replies to a man on Instagram, if she, if she likes another man's photo, she's out the fucking door. I, in, I inflict, I expect, absolute loyalty from my woman. That is not mate guarding. That's not beta. That is just basic territorialism that comes with being a fucking man. I ain't having my chicks talking to other dudes, liking other dudes. My chicks don't go to the club without me. They are at home. And you know what's so attractive about younger women? A lot of these dudes (laughs) talk about fertility and and looks and stuff. I don't actually think it's that. I think that in the modern world, in the days of old, right, you'd meet a woman, you get married, you'd be together, whatever. In the modern world, if I meet a girl who's 33 (laughs) and single, I know the amount of dick that's been through her before me is just simply unattractive. I don't care how nice you are, but you're 33 years old. How many men have fucked? If I get a 19-year-old girl, I might be her second or third man, right? I'm going to be dude number fucking 29. And all the trauma and heartbreak and bullshit they put you through, you're going to try and bring to 
my door? Yeah. Like, well, my last man cheated. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, I don't care. Like, why is that my problem? So if you pick up older women, you have to accept they've been on the carousel longer. They've had more fucking rides, more spin. Yeah. I don't want that shit. Well, this Ooh, fine gentleman, including his brother and other individuals, were arrested in Romania several months ago and charged with multiple counts of sex trafficking, rape, and organizing a criminal group. Um, I want to talk about this because it has an international component and it deals with sex trafficking. And y'all all know that I'm an Eastern European politics guy and, I, and I'm always in the region. So Romania has a serious sex trafficking problem and it's been that way for years. And one has to wonder if Andrew Tate moved to Romania to exploit this. And frankly, I believe that he did. And so, Nola, I want to talk to you about uh, Andrew Tate's um, commentary and how you think that his, uh, what I think is his strategic move to live in places like Romania, um, you know, to push his um, misogynistic agenda. What, you know, what, what are your thoughts about that? Before I get into that, first of all, I need to know what's in that cup. <laughs> Okay, but to your point, so, you know, I am a Southern girl. I am a daddy's girl. And when, you know, I hear, I hear as an academic and especially, you know, uh, being in very kind of progressive spaces like UCLA, you know, where a lot of these, these, these conversations are happening. Um, and, you know, when I hear things like, you know, in a patriarch, the patriarchy, the patriarchy, I think there's a difference between a man leading his family in a very particular way versus a misogynist and someone who clearly worships at the church of LDE. And I'm not going to go ahead and spell that out because Greta Thornburg already did that for us. But <laughs> um, this man clearly, clearly is insecure, honey. That has nothing to do with being patriarchal. That has nothing to do with you getting up every day to go to work to feed your family. That has nothing to do with you coming home every day and spending time with your wife and your children. That has nothing to do with this man is pushing and what he was talking about earlier. Not only was it traumatizing, but he used the pluralization. He kept saying chicks, chicks. So some of what he was talking about, I'm like, wait a minute, you out here pimping with LDE? How you do that? You know, like he's he is just he's all over the place. And it's really unfortunate that a lot of young men for, for you know, who are also being treated to this narrative that, you know, women are progressing too far. You know, therefore, you have to be whatever version of an alpha male that they think um, it, it is the right example to put us women in check. Right. And for whatever reason. This, this, these messages are resonating with young males. And that's really part of the problem because he's grooming. That's another part of it too, right? So you are oppressing, subjugating, and trafficking women. And then you're also grooming young men. So this man is a problem to your point, Terrell. Maybe he did move there specifically for, um, access. And, uh, I, I don't know about that part, but, in terms of the way that young men are being groomed has nothing to do with being that man in a household who's taking care of business and raising his family along mm. with his partner. Two different mm. things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So look, the impact of his 
misogyny is clearly hurting a lot of people. Vice News spoke with some of these folks who talked about how harmful his misogynistic commentary has been. Nobody's concerned about anything that happened 10 years ago when a bunch of girls got rich. There's not a single female complaining. Do you think there's not a single no, 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 female no. complaining? Have you seen one? Tell me. Andrew says no woman has complained about him personally. He won't let us speak to the women who work for him. So for now, it's difficult to verify this claim. But I have spoken to many women who complain about the effect Andrew's rhetoric is having on their lives. To protect them from harassment, I've agreed not to name them. My ex-boyfriend was radicalized by Andrew Tate to the point of threatening to release revenge porn unless I took back what I said and on social media against his sexist, you know, misogynistic views. It's like a virus, the things that he's spreading. The scariest thing is I have no idea if the next guy I meet could be an Andrew Tate fan. As a teacher, it's definitely worrisome. There are boys who look up to him, especially those that are maybe vulnerable and they're sort of going to go into the real world, carrying those violent views with them. I'm 14. The boys at school my age think that it's okay to say horrible things like women are men's property and they get to do what they want with them. Makes me really disappointed in my generation. Earl, that, that has to be hard to, to, to listen to, right? You know, I, I have a son who's 14 years old and I have a daughter who is 12. And I grew up with in a single single parent home my mom raised me I, I i grew up with three strong willed sisters and i think that understanding what and, and and something that nola said really resonated with me when you talk about um what a, what a man what a true man means today right i bought a book and i read it it was it's called making a modern day knight and it talks about how to teach your son to be a modern day knight. And they define manhood by four things. Number one, rejecting passivity. Number two, accepting responsibility. Number three, expecting the, the greater reward. And number four, um, um, I, I forgot the fourth one, but I'll send it to you later. Um, but what I love about that is is it, it's talking about taking true responsibility as men. And I think what's the, the, the greater, the systemic, um wrongness behind i think andrew tate is this notion of 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 how pornography has manifested itself through our society in so many different ways the biggest issue with with pornography and these messages is that it creates a false narrative of of how to treat women and i think when we get to the deeper issues of misogyny as well as pornography, these these are the issues that are really corrupting the, the young minds of our of our of our boys and to a certain even some of our girls as well. So I think it's so important that we get the different narratives out there of how these are really having a huge impact on our on our society. We were talking about this earlier. My when I talk to my son about Andrew Tate, a lot of his peers, a lot of his friends in school look up to Andrew Tate, and I was like, why why is that? How is that? But I know my son doesn't. Because he knows where we stand. So I think it's important that, you know, as, as parents, we have a very clear understanding of the type of information that our kids are accessing to and understanding the true narrative of what's, what it means to be a man. Yeah, I want to, you know, follow up before we go into the next segment. It's like, for me, I think that ultimately, you know, it, I, you know, my grandmother raised me and, you know, like so many people, right? You know, like, you know, I, I think the thing with, with Tate and what 
really startles me about him is this capacity of it, it's a I think that misogyny is just an offspring of white supremacy. Mm. You know, it's this need of dominating another person. Mm. And I don't know about you, like I eventually want to have a you know, I want to be married, have kids. I don't there's nothing in my brain that tells me that I need to have a woman and she needs to do an X, Y, and Z. You know, the women I know pretty much, if I were to say any of this stuff, they would tell me to kiss my kiss their ass, right? You know, like, you know, <laughs> you know so the type of dude that would want that type of woman, it says so mm. much about him mm. than anything, you know? And I definitely am somebody who believes the sex work and all these other things. And I think that we really have to take responsibility for how we treat people and how we... You know, and, and, and not looking at people as objects, right? You know, and so that's our thing because they're, you know, the, the Andrew Tate philosophy is you are supposed to serve me and nothing else. It really treats treat mm. someone as a subhuman, you know? And when I see people, you know, what what I, I really wanted to do this segment because as somebody who travels to Eastern Europe, I see so many Western men that travel to, to Eastern Europe because they have their idea about what a, uh, Eastern European woman is oh, supposed yeah. to be and how they're supposed to treat their men, which is very wild to me because again, all the Ukrainian women I know, if I were to say this bullshit, they'll be like, fuck you, right? You know, and so we stereotype people and, and even white women can be stereotyped into a particular thing when we're thinking about Romania, for example, and there's so many, when even in, in Ukraine, there's an active war going on. I have seen men, older men, go there to prey on women. Mm. You know, like it is a legitimate thing. So there's mm -hmm. a pathology behind this that I really wanted to use this podcast to talk about okay. because it's the globalization of this. It really feeds into you know, pretty much encouraging people to engage in sex trafficking, which, by the way, is different from people who want to engage in sex work. I'm a big proponent of sex work. We'll be talking about this in future episodes. But I think that, you know, people who want to use their bodies for a service, for example, is very different from somebody going doing something against their will. Another conversation. But I want to go into the next se segment that I'm calling Trap House Diplomacy. And so... The reason why I want to have this segment, we're going to spend about eight minutes on this, is because I look at I, I, the first diplomats I met were not people who worked at embassies. They were my uncles who sold crack during the 80s, you know, because they set up territory. They set up relations with different neighborhoods and create a system by which the business, you know, is intact. Now, I'm not a proponent of selling crack, but. I believe that in the grand scheme of things, governments are not necessarily the knights in shining armor that we think that they are. They do low down dirty shit too. Governments have created exploitive systems of colonialism, imperialism, et cetera. And there is a way in which we tend to subjugate certain people who violate, I guess, you know, human conduct, but we don't put governments in that to that same standard and so i it's just really a shout out to my uncles in the hood who if poor urban policy did not put them in the situations that they were in they would be like me doing podcasts about foreign affairs and so 
it's really a tribute to what really motivates us to get into foreign affairs. And so, Nola, I want to ask you, why you, Black woman, are so passionate about foreign policy, a field where so few of us exist and more of us need to be? I, I love this question. Thank you so much. Um, I thought a great deal about this question. And if if you continue to talk about that, an extended conversation about Andrew Tate, don't forget about them black passport bros going to Central America. Next next episode. They they filthy. But anyway. Next episode. Um, we don't talk about next episode. I, you know, I thought a great deal about this. And I know for a fact, you know, being from a place like New Orleans, which is a hodgepodge of many things. Um, it Yes, it is the blackest uh city uh probably in louisiana and but i you know i went to catholic school and most of the educators were these amazing european nuns and um you know there are a lot of people who went to catholic school who who have horrible you know stories i mean there are some there there are some other things to that but i i had i had a great experience in that these women who lived outside of the United States, who came here to, to be teachers, they opened up this world to us. You know, not only were we learning, you know, French and Latin and all those different things at a young age, but I remember one time my fifth grade teacher, Sister Magella, she had this, um, this map on the wall. And on this map, um, Oxford was like in the middle. And I was like, what is that place? And she was like, if anybody can get there, you can't. And it was that kind of encouragement, not just what I was getting at home, but just that opening of the world, you know, from my educators being, you know, these Irish nuns and New Orleans being the melting pot that it is, right? Like my mom and I, we would go to the French Quarter and luncheon and this Greek guy owned one of the best, you know, gumbo spots in the city, you know, so I'm eating baklava and stuff at a very young age and being exposed to all these different things. There's Germantown, there's all these different um, people. And so that's one part of it. That's kind of like the broader kind of global context about culture and people. The politics part um, or the international relations part was the time I grew up in New Orleans, um, it was nothing but black mayors. So I, I, I had this idea of black people in power. Right. And I was very interested in that. And then I remember, um, well, I kind of don't remember, but I do remember when the Pope came to New Orleans and how much of a big deal that was and how impactful this one little man in that white robe had. You know, I didn't fully understand it, but I'm like, who is this man? And so all of these different things kind of tied together and always having this kind of global outlook, always curious about the world. And then when I was an undergrad, when I spent time in, in, in West uh, Africa studying, I knew then and there I wanted to look at the world and apply these kind of domestic questions that I had about race, politics, um, you know, uh, religion, culture, all of these different things. And so that 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 was my starting point. Having these little you know these little white ladies from from Ireland telling me that I could do whatever my little black self wanted to do. And I know that is not the story of most black people, but in my very unique context. I had that I had that encouragement early on right. and um I'm sitting here today talking right. to you. Right, Earl. What about you? Well, first I want to say no, that was so inspiring. Um <laughs> Thank so you. So I I had the very fortunate experience to grow up um 
in a household that diplomacy was part of part of our DNA. My father was the Jamaican ambassador to China, Japan, and several other countries, and I and he presented his diplomatic credentials to pr Chinese President Jiang Zemin. My mother worked at the United Nations for her entire professional career, and so growing up, um, one of my earliest memories as a boy um, was hearing my dad use say this word uh, ambassador. Now I was seven or eight at the time. And do you remember as kids, when you're in class, you, you talk a little bit about what your dad does or what your parents do. Mm -hmm. And so all the boys were talking about what their parent, what their dad does. And so one of the, one, so I, 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 I was hearing everyone talk. So I said, Hey, you know, my dad's a, my dad's an ambassador. And I don't know what that means, but I think he makes a lot of money. <laughs> and, um, like ambassador, like what? We never heard of that. Um, but what was interesting was my dad, we would go and my father, you know, growing up in Jamaica and he was, he came to the United States to do his PhD. He had this unique ability to bargain, but he would bargain by starting by asking the person who's selling him something, where are they from? And when he found out where they were from, he would talk about the internal politics and he knew their their country and the internal politics better than they did. And mm -hmm. so at the end of that conversation of whatever we were buying, he always got a huge discount. I will never, I will always remember. And he would laugh and talk. And so that's my first foray into understanding this beautiful world of diplomacy and and and, and what it means. And so I, I kind of, uh, I had the opportunity to study abroad in um, in Beijing uh, for a year, and then I studied in Japan. I got a scholarship to study there, and it just opened my world to 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 you know how. You, 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 to view China and Japan from a comparative perspective, but also to look at how Americans are perceived abroad and what that means, both as, as you know, someone who was Asian, as someone who was black, and to be able to bring that back to the United States and to my kids uh, in, an, in an international environment is something that's very meaningful and very important to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So mm -hmm. we are going to move on uh, from this segment to another issue of national security. So federal authorities have charged Jack Tashira, a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard with two counts related to retaining and distributing classified and national defense information on a gamer server, uh, according to the New York Times. These documents were connected to very sensitive information about Ukraine's ability to fight Russia's invasion uh, and has um, basically has ginned up concerns about uh, Ukraine's fitness to fight. Um, these things clearly should not have been made public. Uh, the Times also reports that based on the charging documents uh, in this case, the uh, airman does not appear to have been acting as a foreign agent, and this differentiates him from the classic spy case. Uh, he also doesn't appear to have been acting as a whistleblower or otherwise trying to educate the general public about sharing secrets with news media for publication. And this uh, makes this case different from other kinds of situations more common with uh, the 21st century. He also doesn't fit the third category, according to the Times, of past cases of mishandling classified information, basically being a hoarder. Prosecutors have charged people who are um, neither spying nor trying to enlighten the public for taking files home and keeping them. But because uh, uh, Tashira is accused of transmitting large numbers of files to other people who are not authorized to see them, this makes this case 
more serious. Nola, what are your thoughts about this dude and how should we in America be thinking about this story? So two things come to mind. The first, I remember when, you know, when, when this story was first breaking, my, my first question, I, my, my first questions were around his clearance and trying to figure out how someone so young has access to such, you know, um, his, his clearance level. And then not only that, but how does he have access to kind of like a diverse array of classified documents, right? Um, because if, if you're familiar with having clearances, that doesn't mean that you have access to all the things. What, what it means is that you are clear to hear information pertinent to the thing that you're doing, right? So I want to make that very clear. So that was something for me that I actually still have questions about. Like, how did he get, how did he get access? I know that he was probably doing something within the intelligence sphere, but you know, the, these things are stamped. And, and what I mean is when you access information, they know who's accessing it. And if you're printing out information, and that's another thing I don't understand, like the process in which to generate a TS document is not you just pressing print and going to the printer. You know, um, these, these, these documents, um, are assembled in, in a very specific way. The printer has, you know, um, a, you know, a stamp on it saying who printed it, what time, when and where. There's just a lot of kind of procedural questions that I have that are not clear. And then the, the other thing, last night, I was um, invited to uh, go to the world premiere of this movie, uh, Covenant, uh, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, and was directed by Guy Ritchie. And this movie was about um, Afghanistan. And it wasn't necessarily about the neo that happened um you know, after, after we pulled out, but it was about the, the, the relationship between, uh, Afghans and, and you, and U.S. soldiers, and then trying to get them visas to get out. And I say all this to say, I, I, I work in that space. I work in the uh, relocation space on my spare time, whenever that is. And thinking about that leak and thinking about why things are designated, uh, top secret it has more to do with how the information was gathered and looking at this movie and looking at these people who put their lives on the line to like get information to, you know, to, to make sure that, that, that it's, um, that you can rely on it, you know, just for, for many different reasons. And I'm watching this movie, thinking about the leak and being infuriated and people that are calling this young man, some sort of hero and whistleblower, I'm going to say this strongly and, and, and affirmatively, this man is not a whistleblower. He is not a hero. And for people inside of our government who is heralding such BS, it is a travesty. That tells me you do not believe in protecting this country's national security. Because on the other side of that, while you're trying to pander to the public for whatever your end goal is, people's real lives are in jeopardy. The people who are out there gathering this intelligence, their lives are in jeopardy. And that's what's so offensive about that to me. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're so correct about that, because I don't think people really understand how dangerous it is to gather a lot of this intel. And so it feels like a drama for people. But there have been cases when sensitive information like this has been exposed and people die. Right. Yep. So this is a lot more serious Yep. then people really, really are thinking about. And 
when you're looking at Ukraine, I'll tell you from, you know, it's generated an interesting conversation, um, you know, over, over in Ukraine, because in many respects, a lot of people are saying, well, Ukraine needs certain types of weapon systems, attack them, basically long yeah. range, um, you know, Offensive missile systems and, capabilities. you know, yeah. uh, F-16 fighter jets, all this other stuff. So it opens up a conversation. Yeah, it opens up a conversation about this is how desperate the situation is in Ukraine. Yeah. And I get all of that. But I think generally speaking, people know the stakes and this leak was not required to really <laughs> illuminate that. You know what I'm saying? Right. You really didn't yeah, yeah, need yeah. this leak to do that. And so it opens up a larger conversation about, A, how we should be educating the American public about intelligence gathering. And two, mm -hmm. Nola, speaking to your original point about having people like us in these positions, being able as a, as black folk, you know, you, you know, me, Nola, Earl, to talk to people since we are operating in these circles about mm -hmm. how this impacts their security, right? So- it, it, so so it really all this stuff avoids us from being in the emergency room right so for all of the grievances that we have with the u.s government and you know etc and i know who you're talking about in the government fuck marjorie taylor green talking about her this being a white christian male bullshit no this fucker was a, was was operating you know way out of protocol and whatever he needs to get he needs to get this person oh. is not some whistleblower. He did not make us safer. He is not revealing information right. to the American public that is right. creating a better security apparatus for us. That's not what's happening here in this he, case. He at released all. it to teenagers online. Right. On Discord. Right. Yeah. On, on, on fucking serious? Discord. Right, right, right. So fuck so fuck Marjorie Taylor Green and fuck this dude. So they putting this ass in the head like he deserves whatever prosecution he gets, you know. Because we need to have another episode where we talk about security and all these things. Because I think a lot of our people really don't get it. And it's our right. job to help us inform on that. But look, Absolutely. I'm very raw, really passionate about this. So I want to move on to another thing that I'm really passionate about, which is our Vice President Kamala Harris. So as many of you know, I've covered uh, Kamala often um, when she first successfully ran for the U.S. Senate and then as a presidential candidate. And I've grown to respect her, even when I did not agree with her policy views all the time. I mean, she's a national politician. You're not going to agree with everything. But, you know, the past few years, I've seen one report after the other attacking her manage management style, which, um, you know, some people, including myself, believe to be sexist and unprecedented. Because in the grand scheme of things, every politician who has run a campaign in one way or the other, I've had some form of dysfunction. But what's happening with VP Harris to me is overkill. Um, you know, and people are often saying now, where's Kamala at? What's she doing? You know, does she have a job? And at that grand scheme of things, the VP reports to the president. And I haven't seen the type of scrutiny happen to other VPs that's going on with Kamala. That is my issue, right? And so people act like she's in the White House chilling and living high off the hog and essentially being lazy. And and so now I want to do a public service by introducing a, a weekly segment that informs the public about what the hell she's doing, whether you agree with her outlook on things or not. So for example, she was recently in Africa and she's also going to be in Miami to discuss climate change. And she has upcoming speeches on abortion rights, including one at the University of Nevada. So 
I just want to jump off with you, Nola, about, you know, what do you think about so much of the negative press that VP Harris mm-hmm. has gotten over the past couple of years and, and, and your thoughts about how disproportionate it's been? Okay, so, you know, I'm going to try and be succinct here and talk about three points. So when she was running, I remember, you know, I was so excited, you know, the first black woman and all these things. And I had friends, you know, who would push back and say, well, she's not black, you know, in the context of she's not a descendant (laughs) of slaves um, in an American context. I cannot tell you how much pushback I got about that. Um, And that still exists. So that's part of the negativity. Right. That's part of the massage and the bros, you know, who talk about where she at. I'm like, you what you telling me is that you don't watch nobody's type of news. You need to get up off Instagram and probably TikTok and open a newspaper, turn on your television, watch a news outlet, because this woman is literally everywhere. Kamala Harris has been one of the most active vice presidents in the history of our country. That's the second point. And third, you know, this 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 trip to the continent. I get asked about this a great deal. And, you know, I was I I was asked about it in the context of Africa Summit, you know, kind of like condescending questions like, well, is this real? You know, how much support is is the administration really going to put behind it? Then the vice president goes to the continent and that's still not enough. Right. And she didn't only go just symbolically. She showed up, honey, with the checkbook. Right. She showed up and put some money behind those policies. It wasn't just meet and greets and showing up at events and wearing pretty uh, outfits with. Oh, Lord, I love who 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 is it on, on Twitter? Is it too too raw, too real? Who talked about her hair, honey, living in Africa? Child, it I don't care what type of perm you working with, what type of high comb you working with. That hair situation is real. You understand me? So, you know, I just feel so proud, so proud of having this woman who stands in her truth wherever she goes, you know, and um, and I think that, you know, she's definitely been one of the most substantive vice presidents that we've had. In many cases, sometimes it almost seems like the administration pushes her out there more than they do the president. That's just my own personal. That's just my own personal view. I mean, the vice president is literally everywhere. She's focused on domestic politics and she's always and she's also focused on foreign policy, um, too. And I think that she's well rounded. I think that um, she's definitely gotten better in her role. And I look forward to see, you know, what she continues to do. And um, I'm just excited about this woman. You know, I'm I'm she inspires so many people like me and the, the, the young ones, you know, coming up. And for all the massage noir bros who take issues with her, that's on you. You have to deal with the insecurities that live inside of you. You know, um, this woman is out there doing big things. And one last point, And this is kind of a sensitive point. So it's four things. I'm going to keep it a buck. There are black folks in the community that take issue with the second gentleman being white. So you have black folks who are like, well, she's not of, um, you know, uh, she's not a descendant of slaves. And then also she's not married to a black man or a man of color. So it's those kind of superficial things that contribute to this animosity against VP without looking at her substantive policies and what she's actually doing. So basically you're revealing yourself, all you and your isms and your insecurities, because this woman is literally out there with receipts and i'll stop let me add on to this because this is going to be educational for the audience because i've interviewed her more than once and to get some uh, an interview 
with someone like Kamala Harris, number one, it's a big deal because she has she she turns down so many things. I've spent more than an hour each time talking with her. That's a lot of time with someone at her level, whether she was the whether she was attorney general, California senator, whatever. She always gave me a minimum of 45 minutes. And when I would see her on the campaign trail, she would see me and she would talk. So I met her when I was at the root. And so she wanted to maintain that relationship. And again, even when we had disagreements, the way this stuff usually works is that somebody from her team will call you. Y'all just chop it up and y'all work it out. Right. But my whole point with regards to what you're saying, Earl, I just I call bullshit on what those brothers were saying because and I know you do, too. And I know you, too, uh, Nola, because. Number one, I, I don't like having these diaspora battles and with, with look, black people mm -hmm. are a whole bunch of stuff. And again, that's a whole nother thing. But then two, sister graduated from Howard. When I met up with when when I've seen her, you know, I felt like I was talking to a black person, whatever. And again, mm -hmm. I just think that the conversation mm -hmm. is just so ridiculous that yeah. I don't even want to entertain it. But she one of the things that she did from a policy perspective was deal with the um infant mortality rates, which impacts yeah. black women more so than anyone. If you look at her policies, mm -hmm. her policy pushes have done more to advocate for black women than most uh, senators. You know, she spent the, so much time focusing on that issue in black women's uh, body, bodily autonomy. Again, mm -hmm. that's why I talked about the fact that she's going to be at the University of Nevada in the next few days talking about abortion rights, which definitely impacts black women, right? And yep. so Another thing that um, I want to touch on is her recent trip to the continent of Africa. And it was an effort to improve relations um, with African countries and to counter Russia and China's geopolitical influence. And so I want to share a snippet from this speech that she delivered in Accra, um, Ghana, that really sits with me. Man. You, by your very nature, are dreamers and innovators. And so to you, I say, it is your spark, your creativity, and your determination that will drive the future. And with that then, African ideas and innovations will shape the future of the world. So, mm -hmm. Earl, I want to touch on, on on this with you in particular because one, and then we will talk to you too, Nola. But the the thing is, is that I feel like, from a news person's perspective, this administration has devoted more time to engaging the continent of Africa than past administrations, you know, ever. Right? And, you know, and so, one, I don't know about you. But I've covered a lot of presidential debates. I've covered Senate, you know, Senate debates. One, they don't spend a lot of time talking about foreign policy. And when they do, it's, it's more about military, which people confuse with foreign policy. But Africa, the continent, almost never is discussed, right? And so I do appreciate the fact that this administration is really deploying its top diplomats and people like VP Harris to engage the continent. And so... This is just another example of her because she spent a week there, right? That's the whole thing. She spent the doggone week on the continent of Africa, right? Which, and, and, and I don't think people really appreciate 
how skilled Kamala is. I don't know if people have watched her hearings because that prosecutor in many situations came out like a motherfucker. Like if I did something wrong, I would not want to be on the opposite side of her. Like I just wouldn't, right? So she is a very compelling person. And so to deploy her to the continent of Africa to establish the fact that, hey, we are here and we want to build on this speaks volumes. Because the truth of the matter is that Kamala, regardless of whether you agree with her politics or not, can function as a president. If she were president of the United States, I would be cool. You know, again, the politics, et cetera, we can talk about that. But could she lead this country? Yes. And so you're sending essentially a de facto president to the continent of Africa to show that we are serious about the policy. But one thing when she talked about the, you know, uh, the innovation of, of, of Africans, we don't look at Africa as a place where we do legitimate business. It's looked at as a continent where we have to give them something, whereas a place where we send aid and where we send humanitarian resources. But this is a continent of very young people or young entrepreneurs who are business people who have capital. And I think that in that snippet that we listened to speaks to that. Earl, your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great point. And, and I think a lot of people were saying that you know, was was is the administration's approach? Is it more reactionary to what China uh, and, and and Russia are doing? When you look at, you know, China got the demographics of of Africa right from the start, right? They understood you have a growing middle class, um, you know, community and, and countries, and that is going to be key for future economic growth and development. And they were keen on developing long-term relationships, not short transactional relationships. You know, when you look at, you know, Pre President Trump and, and, and we get a lot of flack in, in the United States from having more of a transactional relationship with, 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 with the continent of Africa, uh, whereas the Chinese approach have taken a very diff fundamentally different kind of holistic approach of investing in infrastructure through the Belt and Road Initiative and a variety of other infrastructural deve developments. I think where I think Kamala did an, an extraordinary job of being able to highlight not just uh, in investment, like you said, in bringing uh, NOLA important economic resources, but also highlighting um, the music and artists of, of, the, of the African diaspora and so many other components of African culture that are so important. So I think that, you know, I, I hope the administration will continue to make huge and significant and much needed investment in, in Africa because it, it's, it's, it's been way too long. This should have been done years ago. I mean, I think PEPFAR under President George Bush was one of the most influential programs to this day of how we can use aid to really reconstruct and rebuild economic communities in Africa. And I hope we can continue to do that in the future. Nola. So, you know, I, you know, who's at the table matters. You know, I just want to start there. And, you know, as the foreign policy space is broadening out and we have a long way to go, I do know that, you know, Terrell, we were at the, uh, the Africa summit and, you know, we know that there were black folks behind the scenes making sure that happened, that that was a reality. And not just in, you know, I, I want to make the distinction between, you know, performative and um, uh, shallow versus substantive, you know, diversity or inclusion. And there are there, there were folks from the diaspora from around the world making sure that 
not only did the event happen, but that we were partnering with, and I want to really highlight that word with partnering with, not just giving aid to, not um, actually considering, you know, African states as actual partners, which is a huge shift in policy, right? It's a huge shift in policy because African presidents, and I think President Bio said this at the Africa Summit, he was like, listen, we're not here, you know, to be recolonized. You know, we are here as partners. And that was the most salient point, in my personal opinion, about the Africa Summit. And from what I've seen, from the conversations I've been a part of, it is a real effort to make sure that that partnership continues. Yes, there are strategic reasons. Absolutely, there are strategic geopolitical reasons. Absolutely, because Africa has the youngest population of all the continents around the world. You know, there are strategic reasons why we are partnering with the continent. But it's also, you know, Black folks being in this space like, um, hold up. You know, uh, what, what we doing, uh, about Africa? And I know that the White House is going to, um, convene a diaspora, uh, uh, council very soon to not only just talk to, um, Africans about what's going on on a continent, but realizing how important a diaspora is in that equation mm -hmm. too. And the last thing I want to say, cause I know we're, we're short on time. I have the extreme pleasure of talking to, um, now Madam Vice President Kamala Harris before um, the Biden-Harris administration won. And I asked her, how does it feel to have black folks not support her? And that mm -hmm. woman looked me straight in my eyes and she said, it hurts. And I need people to understand that we are talking about a real human being. But I know in like the atmosphere, the ethos of social media and your little Twitter fingers get to going, you don't think about people being people. This is a real breathing human being. This woman has a responsibility on her shoulders that no other woman of any ethnicity and race has ever shouldered in a time where this country is literally tearing itself apart and it is also being exported out to other parts of the world. You understand what I'm saying? The largeness yeah. of this. This is not some small thing. <laughs> this woman has made history multiple times in one lifetime. And it is unfortunate that I personally believe that a lot of misinformation and disinformation that has been strategically ingested into the black um, ecosystem of social media that continues to divide black women and black men on purpose. It is an age old divide and conquer strategy. And unfortunately, a lot of it is working. And so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll end on this. You know, I'm, I am proud to say that Kamala Harris is our vice president of the United States. And that is not to say, going back to Terrell's earlier point, not that I've agreed with everything and there have been some rocky complications, but what this woman has gotten better, she will get better. And I am just in awe of her strength and her fortitude. And, um, you know, that, that, that's all that I want to say on that. And that speech that she gave at the slave castle, if you've been there, I've been there. It is, it, it gave me chills. It gave me chills. Cause I, she, she wasn't just speaking about Americans, you know, um, uh, mired in, in chattel slavery, but we're not the only ones who were enslaved. Brazil has the largest population of enslaved black people on the planet, period. And let's talk about the Caribbean, you know, so that's our own ethnocentrism um, showing up. Right. So let's check ourselves, mm -hmm. but you know, go BP. I'm here for it. Um, yeah, that's it.
<laughs> yeah, so listen, this is a perfect way to close out the show because what I believe is that once black people are free, everybody's going to be free. And Amen. I think policies for, have shown it. Right, exactly. And so I want to thank you, Sister Nola and Brother Earl, for coming on the show and spreading the gospel. Of, of 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 Negro foreign policy and trap house politics, and so um, this this has been a great 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 uh, comeback for Black diplomats, and we got more for you coming next week. But um, in addition to thanking Brother Nola and Sister no no sis, Sister Nola, excuse me, and, and, and Brother Earl, I also want to thank the Outrider Foundation for supporting Black diplomats and. Um, I've also used several news sources to prepare for this show, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Vice News, CNN, and Al Jazeera. And the song that you hear playing in the background is brought to you by Ink Prod, a dope independent rapper from my hometown of Detroit, Michigan. Black Diplomats is on all the major podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a five-star rating and tell everyone how great our show is. All right, it was all good, breaking down foreign policy with everybody. So one of the things that I want to end the show with is that black excellence is global, baby. So y'all all have a good day and uh, talk to y'all next week.